Drumming. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and this week I'm talking with Mike Malone. Mike lives in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and plays a huge variety of gigs in the greater northeast Wisconsin region. He also runs the popular and growing YouTube channel Malone Drum and has successfully diversified his career between playing, teaching, and monetizing his internet presence, all from the confines of a small but vibrant market. We have some new Patreon content up, including a video by Bruce Becker discussing 16th note grooves three ways and another by Brian Zach about jazz ride technique. We will also soon be featuring five transcriptions by today's guest, Mike Malone, including Steve Gadd on We're In This Love Together by Al Jarreau, Anderson Pack on Leave the Door Open by Silk Sonic, and last week's guest, John J.R. Robinson on Rock With You by Michael Jackson. So be on the lookout for all that. You can access all of this and the rest of our Patreon content for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash working drummer. Mike and I crossed paths on Reddit as members of the drum sub there and just started following each other's careers. The Ain't Too Proud tour recently brought me to Appleton, Wisconsin, just about half an hour from Mike's place in Oshkosh, so we were able to hook up. As you'll hear, he is exactly the kind of ground-level pro that personifies the title of this podcast. So here we go. Hope you dig. Mike Malone. Last month you posted uh, this this pic on Instagram that was your June gig schedule, and I I just I just want to read some of this to give people an idea of what your life looks like. June first, Chet Baker tribute at Evergreen. June second, the Pocket Kings at Hagermeister Park. Then secondhand stereo at Private Wedding. Water City Jazz Orchestra at Music on Main. The Pocket Kings at GB Botanical Gardens. Kate Voss at the hot, uh, Kate Voss and the Hot Sauce, love that band name at Primal Eats. Stuck on Blue at Fletch's Patio. The Pocket Kings at Private Wedding. Julio Reyes at Private Event. We're only up to June 14th. <laughs> like you're all over the place here, <laughs> both yeah, ge- you know, geographically and musically. Um, you're you're busy as fuck. This is the kind of itinerary I would expect to see from a drummer in Chicago or San Francisco or Atlanta or, you know, but you live in Oshkosh, Wisconsin and you cover near other nearby cities. There's kind of like a handful of cities in this region that you, you get to, but I, I was just blown away by the variety and frequency (laughs) 
of this schedule you got going. So talk a little bit about like what the surrounding cities are here, um, which of them you cover and, and how your schedule got so damn full. <laughs> yeah. So I live in Northeast Wisconsin, Oshkosh specifically, but this region is called the Fox Valley. And I would say that includes Oshkosh, Appleton, and maybe Green Bay as well. Uh-huh. And then there's a couple cities in between all those cities or, you know, right off to the side that are kind of included in that. Called the Fox Valley because they're along the Fox River, yes? Yes, okay. exactly. Did your research. <laughs> yeah. So I would say most of my work performing live is between those three cities and the kind of in-between ones. Mm-hmm. But um, I think one of the reasons I really kind of struck gold moving back here um, after I finished touring, um, one of my friends who grew up in this area as well, who's been on the podcast, Wayne Salzman, yeah, plays for Eric Johnson. He lived in Austin at the time. Right. And he was back home for Christmas or something, and I hung out with him, and we were talking about kind of what I was considering as a next step. And I had asked him about Austin, like, oh, that seems like a really strong music scene and city to be in. And he had told me one thing that like always kind of stuck with me and really like still stands out to me was that if you live in Austin and you're willing to travel an hour and a half for a gig, that might get you to the other side of Austin, right? (laughs) Especially with traffic, that might be, you're saying a two hour radius of traveling, right? Right. Obviously where I live is kind of less populated and traffic is a joke compared to what people deal with in Chicago or any other big city. Yeah. So like he said, if you're willing to drive an hour and a half, you can play all of the Fox Valley. You can play up in Door County, which is kind of the peninsula part, which is like the real summer resort area, just stuff happening every night. You can play in Milwaukee. You can play in Madison, two of the biggest cities in the state. Mm -hmm. You can get to central Wisconsin, which would be like Wausau, Stevens Point, and a few other kind of smaller areas, all within an hour and a half, pretty reliably. So it's like, instead of choosing to work in one big city where there's probably a lot of work, more work than there is in Oshkosh specifically, (laughs) I can choose to kind of consistently work in like 20 different cities and three or four kind of mid-level market areas of Wisconsin in general. So I always thought that was kind of a nice way to think about it. And like last night I played in Stevens Point, which is like a little over an hour more central Wisconsin. And tonight I'm in Door County, like to the tip of it. So it's more like two hours north of here. Wow. And tomorrow morning I'm in Milwaukee. So this weekend is kind of like a perfect microcosm of dealing with, uh, the most extreme odds and ends of the state where I might travel. Right. I was talking with, uh, Scott, the guy who's playing congas on the show here. Um, and he was kind of saying the same thing about how, like, you know, if you're willing to drive a little bit, there's a lot of towns. There's And and I was like, this sounds like living in L.A. Because, you know, when I lived there, I would routinely drive an hour and a half or two hours for a gig. But instead of driving through, you know, the concrete slab that is L.A., you're just driving through <laughs> cornfields and farms out here. <laughs> sure, yeah, a little bit. Uh, I know, I think maybe some people have a different image of Wisconsin by how we're represented in like national media, which I feel like for most people is watching making a murderer or something Oh, okay, and thinking yeah. like, Oh God, does everyone out there talk like that and wear overalls? Um, and it's not totally like that. I feel like we're a little more 
little more urban than that. But um, <laughs> yeah, it is a lot of that. And luckily, I like driving, mm-hmm. especially on the way home from a gig. Yeah. In silence sometimes or with podcast or sports talk radio, anything but music. Yep. Window down, just like let me enjoy this hour to hour and a half to kind of unwind and decompress so I can get home and totally go to sleep and kind of recharge. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Chad Gamble talked about that. Um, you know, when he's on tour with Jason Isbell on the 400 unit that, you know, the whole outfit is based in Nashville, but he lives in like Tuscumbia, Alabama, which I think is three hours away. So, you know, he gets home from a tour, everybody gets back to Nashville and he has this, you know, three hour drive to, just sort of get back into husband dad mode that he's about to walk into back home. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree about, you know, just having that, that drive time and not listening to music. Like your ears are full. My brain is full. I just, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I do, I do listen to music regularly and maybe on the way to a gig, especially if I need to get songs in my head for yeah, something for sure. new or yeah. a band I don't play with regularly. But yeah, that drive home after a gig is like this sacred kind of almost like meditating time to kind of unwind and let that door close. And right. Because for me, like if I'm playing five minutes from home, which I live right by the downtown here, so sometimes I'm playing like a mile from home. Mm-hmm. It's like if I play late night and get home, I can't even go to bed for another hour or two. I just need to kind of like be up. I still have the energy. Yeah. And if the gig went well, you know, like. I don't want to go to bed. I'm in a good mood. (laughs) So yeah, that driving is kind of nice. And there's so many places I can play and different scenes I can be in with, yeah, 90 minutes is like a pretty hard cap. Right, right. So in addition to the, um, you know, cities and little regions that are within your reach here, um, talk about just the, the, the demand for live music here and the variety of live music that one can go see. Cause it's, it's happening like, you know, in, in the aggregate between all these little cities, you know, if, if your schedule is any indication, it's happening here just as much as it is in any big city. Exactly. Yeah. And honestly, it's not like I've just like cornered this market and I'm the one drummer who makes a living. I think there's probably I bet there's 10 other drummers living between Oshkosh and Appleton playing just as much as I am Wow! and staying that busy. Yeah. I think part of the reason I stay busy is because I also enjoy the business side of things. So I do probably 75% or more of the booking for the gigs I play. Oh, wow. Okay. Which is like a double-edged sword because sometimes I'll pigeonhole myself into something because I feel this responsibility to schedule work and be like, oh, four months out, I don't really have a lot going on. Let me make some cold calls or emails to venues where I work regularly and get some stuff on the books. Yeah. And then somebody asked me to do something that would be really fun or new or play with someone I've never played with before. And I've already kind of scheduled myself down. Right. So, but um, yeah, I think there's a lot of demand for it up here in the Midwest. Um, one thing that I've kind of found when we're talking about those smaller cities is they don't have their choice of like 20 entertainment options to go to on Friday night. Right. Right. If you're in, in Oshkosh, I think there's probably a lot of choices you could do, whether it's dining, going to a show, going to the movies, going to see a concert, going to a sporting event or something. But when you go to a smaller town that only has 15,000 people, it's like, this is the one live music event happening in town tonight. Or you can... Might be the only one this week. Go to a bar and just drink without music. Right. Right? (laughs) Yeah. And you would think going to those smaller towns, 
especially as someone who plays a lot of jazz, they wouldn't be interested in that sort of thing. And I've always been pleasantly surprised. You know, I've gone to certain gigs thinking like, oh my God, they're not going to be the crowd that's going to be able to appreciate this. This is more art music or something. And I've always kind of found that they're more open-minded and just grateful to have entertainment coming to their town where they don't have to travel 30 to 45 minutes to go to a show. Right. And they're usually pretty receptive to anything as long as you're good. (laughs) Right. You know, and respectful of the stage. Because I do think some musicians, right, kind of go there and think no one's listening to them and kind of put off a vibe that they don't care. Well, we're here till 10, so I'm banging on my drums till 10. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, That's interesting. Like, just the idea of, you know, wherever you're playing... Um, it, like you said, in a in a setting where you're afraid that maybe people won't appreciate it, or won't get it, or won't like it, or whatever. If you if you do it earnestly and honestly and well, people tend to respond to that almost no matter what it is. Like if if they can if they can um, sort of perceive that you're here for them and you want to bring them in to this experience, they'll come. Yeah, I think it makes. A huge difference. And there was definitely a time in my playing career early on as a full-time musician where I sort of got caught in that wind of thinking like I should be doing something way cooler than this and maybe not giving my audience and the venue the respect they deserve as coming out to listen to my music and give me an opportunity to be working tonight. Mm -hmm. So I try to remind myself of that. I mean, I certainly have days where I'm probably not in a good attitude, whether it's like oh, it took me way longer to get to the gig. I had to bring way more equipment or something. But yeah, you kind of have to remind yourself to always put on that genuine hat and be present and give the people what they deserve. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I feel like I really learned that from playing in churches. Because huh. I, I do a lot of like church subbing work where they might hire musicians, especially churches where they rely on volunteers, but they will hire a musician when no one is available or someone's sick. Right. And that's a very like important setting to be respectful and for sure understand the meaning of why you're there. It's not really about your music or your playing. It's about letting people connect with their faith, even if it's not something related to you. Right. Most of the places I play, I don't have a connection with spiritually or anything, but mm. I understand the responsibility as a musician of, caring and being present and looking like I'm engaged and into it so that the people in the audience trying to have a impactful experience can not be distracted by my attitude or presence. Yeah. So that's kind of the setting where I really feel the pressure of that. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's an interesting parallel and a great uh, sort of connection that you've made. Um, Just, you know, the, the, the respect that you approach a church gig with, you can approach a bar gig with that same respect because it's not a religious experience, but it is a communal experience that people have chosen to come to. Um, Yeah, I think, well, you've been in Wisconsin for almost a week, so maybe you've figured it out, but going to a bar is kind of a religious experience for (laughs) a lot of people here. People uh, more here than anywhere I've been, tavern culture and people kind of having their hometown bar where they're at every Friday night and supper club culture and stuff is a a big part of life out here. I'm so I'm so here for it. I went to lunch at Mark's East Side 
uh oh yeah yesterday. so you got a legit supper club experience i did and like it was it was kind of late in the lunch uh hour uh so there weren't many people in there but like i i just totally got the 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 whole picture of like everybody who works there the regulars that come in there like there were these two old ladies that came in to get a to-go order and there was a guy sitting at the bar and the ladies were like oh so and so every time i come in here you're working and the guy's like well i gotta make a buck somehow (laughs) yeah and then the bartender says ladies are you ready for your grasshoppers and they're like yeah they sat down and had little grasshoppers i was like this this is this is their life yeah (laughs) and i mean so great it's everywhere i have there's a supper club a block from here and I live in, you know, kind of an area that's just covered with houses for a few miles and there's just a supper club in the middle of it. Right. Yeah. And a few kind of tavern style bars just in the middle of a neighborhood. Yeah. So yeah, that's just kind of the lifestyle out here. So I think with that much consistency of people used to going out to get dinner on Friday night or something, live music is kind of a natural pairing for a lot of that stuff and yeah. people still value and appreciate it here. Right. Right. So you mentioned moving back here and having been on tour for a while, like where, where were you, who were you on tour with? Yeah. So I, um, was actually born in LA in Yorba Linda, oh, wow. Orange County area. Uh-huh. And then when I was six or so, we moved to Atlanta. That's right. So it's kind of a that. weird parallel with you also being in both those areas. Yeah. And then when I was in middle school, we moved to Oshkosh specifically, right? So I went through kind of my more formative years, especially musically playing in school band and stuff in this area. Yeah. And I played a lot in high school with bands and there was, I was already aware of a strong music scene, but I just thought every place had that much live music. Mm -hmm. But when I went to college, I moved to Eau Claire, Wisconsin, which is kind of on the west side of the state. And it really is more of like a suburb of Minneapolis. Okay. It's about an hour from Minneapolis. And they also have a super strong music scene there and a great music program, especially with the jazz program. Um, And then during my senior year, I auditioned for the Glenn Miller Orchestra and got that. And so I left school for a little bit to tour with them. And that was my first- What year was that? 2013. Was, Was Aiden Smith in the band at the same time? No, I don't think so. Okay, he was a trombone player I knew. Um, anyway, continue. They've had a lot of people. Yeah, though. It, it's <laughs> it's kind of a heavy turnover gig because it's all by bus. Yeah, around the country in Canada, the pay is not amazing, but it's almost like an internship opportunity. Yeah, to play with what was really one of the most popular artists in America in his heyday. Right. 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 Um, and for me, it's like this is the dream: playing big band jazz with a salary. 50 weeks a year on the road or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I did that for a while. And I think since I was only 22 or something, I was a little green in terms of understanding that music. And we talked about it earlier, but that's kind of a nostalgic artist. Oh, for sure. Playing a very specific era of music from the thirties and forties. Yeah. And to be able to play that music to the level that band played at and understand how to forget everything that happened afterwards in music. Like, I don't know what bebop playing is because it didn't exist when this music was played. And just like the feel of the drums, especially like big band swing from that early on is really rigid Mm -hmm. so that people could dance to it. And they had a strong pulse to dance to. And like, as someone who grew up in high school, jazz band playing Count Basie, it's like, that's a lot more smooth 
and a totally different feel. And then bebop playing, which is a lot of college jazz education, is kind of based off that language. Yep. That's totally different too. And it took me a long time to kind of figure out how to get that sound. Yeah. So that was a real struggle for me. And probably the first time I felt like major failure mm. of like, I just don't know what it is. And like trying to dig into recordings of old Sinatra stuff and Tommy Dorsey and Glenn Miller, of course, and all those other artists and figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I remember talking to my jazz director after I had left and come back to finish my degree and say like, we don't play this music the way it's really meant to be played. And like, this is something I've been like digging into and, he acknowledged it and said, that is like so deep that I can't cover that in an undergrad degree. Mm. He's like, I, I know exactly what you mean, but we don't have the time to address that and get that in what we do in big band music. Right, right. So it's just a totally different thing. So went back and finished my degree and then uh, got a call to play with Ray Brown Jr. Oh, cool. Who's um, the son of Ray Brown, the bass player, and Ella Fitzgerald. Right. And he's a vocalist uh, with a jazz quartet on a cruise ship contract. Huh. So I went and did that for a while. And uh, that was a totally different experience as well. And then after that had kind of ended, in that last year of college, I had got connected with a vocal jazz group out of Minneapolis called Five by Design. Uh -huh. Five singers doing vocal jazz music. And they used to tour with whether it'd be like a four-piece band, kind of a jazz combo, or a miniature big band, a lot by van around the country playing. But at the time I had joined the band, they had really moved on to strictly doing symphony pops concerts. Mm -hmm. So it was more like traveling with a drummer and a piano player, sometimes a bass player, and uh, flying out to do a little residency with a symphony orchestra, yeah. wherever they are for part of their pop series. Right, okay. So those are kind of the three touring experiences I had before moving back to this area. Yeah. Um, and when I moved back here, I was still playing with five by design, kind of flying out for a few gigs a year. Um, but then they had slowly kind of retired and called it quits. Uh -huh. So uh, that was the last one. And then since then, it's really been full-time work in, you know, a smaller market. The robbing and stealing and the breaking in your homes is getting a little dangerous to walk the streets alone. Somebody better get on the case. Yeah, real thing, the real thing. You ain't got no time to waste. Come on, people. People say, people say, have I got a right to live? Come on, people say, people say, no, have I got a right to live? People say, people say, have I got a right to, have I got a right to live? Did you sort of um, consciously make the decision like I'm I'm going to put roots down here. I'm going to buy this house. I'm not going to fuck with the road <laughs> in any shape or form for a while. 
was it a was it like an intentional pivot professionally that way? I think to a degree it was. Um, I would always since I was touring full time, it didn't really make sense to have an apartment or anything, right? Wherever I was living at the moment. So I, whenever I had a break from touring, I would come back and stay with my parents here in Oshkosh. And every time I'd come back, I would go to kind of the local jazz jams or something and always pick up subbing work, even last minute. Right. Or like, oh, I'm going to be home for these three months and talk to a drummer in the area. And they would set me up with tons of work and got to know more of the venues and places I had even played at in high school, but now connecting with more professional musicians and playing. So every time I'd come back, the work was really good, paid well, and most importantly, playing with musicians who I felt like were really top-notch players and people I enjoyed working with. Right. So at the end of that kind of cruise ship contract, I was spending the whole month on the ship, like making a list of every venue I could think of in town, every musician I know, so that when I got done with that, I could very strategically like hit the ground running, coming back here and yeah, give it a shot here. Wow. Because at the end of the day, like if I need to go to Chicago, it's a little under three hours, uh-huh. which is not unbearable. It's not a fun drive, like coming home at like two in the morning or something. Or Minneapolis is like, you know, a little under five. Okay. Yeah. And those are two bigger markets where like, okay, maybe if something hits off there, I would consider moving out to one of those areas. Mm -hmm. But I would just always fill up my schedule so well here with music I enjoyed doing and being compensated well that... Yeah, it kind of made sense to stick around. Right. I was going to ask, like, you know, where, where, um, what's the state of your ambition? Like, <laughs> I think that's a, a good question, too. Cause as I've talked to some of my like musician friends I went to college with who might have moved to New York or Minneapolis or something, they'd always ask, like, do you feel challenged here that like you can really do something great from here? And I think that's a fair question. Um, well, I, I would, I would, uh, take a little issue with the question um, because you can obviously do something great from here. Like you're playing great yeah. music with great musicians. Um, but the question is, you know, does, does your ambition uh, drive you to seek bigger opportunities? And I, like, yeah. I've, I've come to make this distinction, you know, in, in terms of my, my playing life and my career, there's, you know, there's, there's the quality of the gig. There's the quality of the music you're playing and the musicians you're playing with that's separate and apart from how quote unquote big the gig is, how big the platform is, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Those are two different things. And, and sometimes you get, you know, both in the same package, but, um, do you feel the need to go after a big gig or a higher ceiling market? Yeah. Um, not necessarily, but I'm not opposed to having some of those opportunities where I could travel more and play and do fly out gigs or something. Cause that's one of the nice things about today's world is that more and more musicians I know have kind of left if they were in New York or LA and it's like, well, I already tour with this artist and we fly out for most gigs. I can fly out of Appleton. Right and meet them in Switzerland right. and play the most major jazz. It's not going to really change the budgeting or efficiency. Yeah. I do think when you're not in a certain market, it's easy to be forgotten about sure. even making those calls. Right. They're going to forget like, oh, of course we could fly out so-and-so. We're flying out everybody. Right. Um, but in terms of moving to a place, like you mentioned yeah. earlier, if I'm going to move to Chicago or Minneapolis, like there has to be an opportunity there. 
I'm not just going to yeah. pull up stakes here and move there and just be like, okay, let's see what I can do here. Like something would have to bring you there. The longer I've lived here, the more I've kind of grown to realize that this is like my kind of pace of living. Yeah. So in terms of like happiness, like I'm the most diehard Packers fan you'll ever meet. <laughs> and I am in like the peak of people who understand that. And the world stops here on Sundays when the Packers play. Right. If you have a gig and they get a playoff game on Saturday night, your gig's canceled, <laughs> you know? And I'm okay it's, with it because yeah. I want to watch the game. Right, you know? right. Um, so, you know, just lifestyle. And then one thing too with my parents being retired and older and my sister moved back to this area and had kids, it's like, oh, I'm close to my family. Yeah, man. Get to see them regularly. I understand now how awesome that is and talking to my friends who get to see their parents twice a year if they're Mm -hmm. lucky. Right. So that's a really important part of it. And the reason I want to stay around and, you know, now I'm engaged and I'll have a family one day Yeah, and it'll be nice to have that network and give them those kind of opportunities. Right. Yeah. In terms of ambition, like career wise, I do think now more than ever in terms of the internet, you can make an impact from anywhere. Right. Yeah. And like, you know, we've connected a lot over Reddit. Yeah. And a few times I have a jazz group that writes original music that I'm really passionate about. And when I've shared stuff on the Reddit community, gotten great response. And it's like, those people want to buy the album now. Or where can I stream this? It's like, okay, there is a chance we can, you know, not be just constricted to distributing our music and what we offer within that 90 minute region. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's really opened up a lot of doors for, being able to do something on a larger scale from the middle of nowhere. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that's great. And then the other thing that kind of like hit me like a bag of bricks was there's a, a restaurant in this area where the owner, when I was in high school had just opened up and he was really good to me about booking my jazz groups and stuff and giving me kind of my first paid gigs yeah. and kind of experiencing that. And he actually was a percussion major in college in Eau Claire where I ended up going to school and he oh, was yeah. always, you have to go here. Huh. This place is going to get the best out of you. And like, you're going to love it. So I've always stayed connected with him. And I was listening to him in an interview talk about, cause he was in Madison running a major restaurant there and ended up moving back here and opening up his restaurant. And he had talked about like, you leave where you grew up and learn how to do great things and learn from the new communities you're in. And then at some point in life, it's really great when you can come back and bring that wealth of knowledge to your hometown, right? Yeah. So I think about that a little with my career. It's like as someone who teaches lessons too, to middle school, high school, college age students, you know, many of whom went to the exact schools I went to. It's Mm -hmm. like cool that I can kind of, you know, help build the next generation a little bit and give value. And I'm involved with, you know, the community big band here that does a lot of strong things for the community and the jazz area. And it's like, it's nice to be able to give that back to the place that really helped shaped me and helped me learn to love music. So yeah, yeah. I th- feel really kind of, I feel responsible for trying to make the most out of my community with what I learned from being on the road or being in different areas. Yeah. Yeah. And we talk all the time about, you know, finding, um, finding the community where, like you said, the pace of life apart from music, just, uh, agrees with you. Um, and you know, we've, we've usually put that in terms of, you know, what, what does the community do for you? Right? Like this community puts me at peace. This community gives me some opportunities. Um, this community is, is my speed, 
but uh, you're you're also talking about you know what you can do for the community and exactly. the sense of responsibility there. Yeah. So once he had kind of mentioned that with his restaurant, I was like, wow, that is like something I want to be able to provide for my area, you mm-hmm. know? And I want to, I think there's a lot of people who move away from here who end up coming back and are very passionate about where they grew up. And I'm sure there's plenty of places around the country like that. Um, but I think people from the Midwest are really care about where they came from and want to get back. Yeah. Like I feel there's, there's sort of, um, I don't know how to put it exactly. There's like an embeddedness about the, uh, the vibe here <laughs> and um part of me part of me thinks part of me doesn't like that part of me wouldn't want to be so embedded and and so uh i guess on the on the negative side of that there it you know it could feel stagnant to me right it could feel yeah very a little, much a, a little myopic or a little bit of a bubble but on the positive side, it's just like there's there are deep roots here. Like people have deep roots. I don't think it's entirely unique to this region. I think, you know, people have a connection to where they grew up um, almost no matter where they grew up. Um, I certainly feel that connection to Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, but there is not as much music going on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I agree with you. I think in my time being here too, I have also found – and I would never call anyone out, but I, you know, played with musicians or groups where I'm like, I feel like we're not challenged in terms of like, we don't have to stay sharp on our game to get the gig again right? or this or that. And, you know, I'm sure you deal with it too when you play in any market, but musicians who like get an email for a gig and you're at the gig and they're opening up the email to download the charts. It's like, there's almost, especially with jazz musicians, this sense of pride of like, just winging it. Yeah. Like, oh, I've put in all this work shedding my, you know, licks and learning how to play where I should be able to just open it up and be awesome. Right. And that's like the design of like a big band reading gig. Yeah. You know, but yeah. like I've tried to not fall into that trap with things I do, even with the frequency that I play, it's like, I still want to put effort in and put the best version of myself forward. Cause there may not be 50 drummers to call in this region to sub the gig who can do it, but there's a dozen, you know, just in this market. (laughs) And I don't want to be off someone's list because I showed up and asked them, did you send an email with the charts? I haven't seen it yet. I'm so glad you mentioned that because it, it made me flash back to my younger self who was that jazz guy who sort of like, uh, just wasn't into rehearsing, you know, sort of took pride in my ability to show up and sight read something or show up and sort of like listen and feel my way through something. And, you know, that, that is part of jazz. Like, especially in the jazz world, you don't want to over rehearse things. You want to leave room for spontaneity and creativity and all that shit. But it took me a while to come around to the idea of like, no, like get prepared, get your shit together, go rehearse, listen to the tune, look at the chart, like show up knowing what you're going to do instead of this sort of like badge of honor. Like, Oh, I'm, I went to fucking jazz school. I can get, you know, I can get yeah. through anything on a moment's notice. Well, and I've had a crazy week this week with gigs and all like very different things and a couple playing with new people that I haven't worked with before. And I was talking to a friend yesterday about it. Like 
I almost wonder if that's the negative part of technology, specifically with like every musician using an iPad for charts is like yeah. before, even 10 years ago, before everyone had iPads, you at least had to print out the music. And maybe if you're an overachiever, you taped the pages so your charts were in order yeah. and you wouldn't get messed <laughs> up. But you had to show up with the music, which meant you had to print it out. And now I feel like with everything right at your fingertips, you're like, oh, I'll check the email when I get there about what time soundcheck is. It's like you had to plan a lot more. I remember having to print off MapQuest directions yeah, to go man. to certain things. And now <laughs> it's like, of course, I'll just look it up on my phone. Oh, it's probably not more than an hour. So I'll leave it four and get there at five. Yeah. You know, I think that's probably the negative thing I've noticed with how much technology has right. and changed you, what like, we do. You, you can pull up a song on Spotify a minute before a gig and be like, what was that bridge again? Oh, yeah. right, okay. Whereas before, like you were saying, you you had to do that on your own. You couldn't pull it up on your phone. And I think I, th- I think the results were better. Like this is this is what brought me around to um, you know, the the idea of being more open to rehearsal and taking more responsibility to be prepared because the results are better. The results yeah. are always better. And I, I, it got to the point where I was, you know, I would be on a gig and it would be like, we should have fucking rehearsed or yeah. we, we should have rehearsed more because <laughs> like, cause this ain't ready. Um, and w- one of the, one of the things that drives me the most crazy in terms of what you're talking about in, you know, just being able to pull up a chart on an iPad or whatever, singers are just reading lyrics and they're buried in their phones and their iPads and, and, you know, drummers do it too. Every member of the band does it, but like, I, I, I'm just airing a grievance of mine. This has nothing to do yeah, <laughs> with anything. I go back and forth on that too, where it's like, I think just understanding when that's acceptable. If you're gonna play a four hour bar gig and play a lot of music, Okay, I would I would not expect you to have every lyric to every song and be a benefit, but and, and I will say that I, I I'm fully aware of the fact that I think singers have the hardest job on the bandstand. Like they they have to be the front person, they have to be the liaison, they have to be the ambassador. In addition to you know actually singing and like you said, memorizing all these lyrics. Um, but yeah, like so wh- whether you're a singer or an instrumentalist, like. If if you're gonna if you're gonna have your cheat sheet if you're gonna have your iPad like get good at um, not being buried in it get yeah. good at still being in the room with the other musicians and with the audience right yeah and I th- think about it a lot especially with the jazz world of like when you were in college doing jazz programs and when I was too there was still an emphasis on like learning a tune meant memorizing it yeah and for us drummers that's a lot. You need to know the melody, the form, the structure. And if you can understand things like, oh, everyone plays this tune in F, that can only help you in terms of communicating like, oh, what key are we doing this? And, you, and you're able to contribute, right? Yep. But we kind of get away with like, I don't know, but it's ABA, I'll be fine, right? <laughs> totally. I don't know what key it's in. <laughs> I don't know what, you know, what key the bridge goes to or something. Uh-huh. But uh when I was in college, there's a lot more emphasis on that. And then being on a, especially if you're at a jam session, like you call tune, you know it. And I've definitely been at jam sessions where everyone has an iPad. Like, Oh, you want to do X tune? Like, and they look it up and they have 60 real books. Oh, you guys want to do the Colorado cookbook version? Or do you mm. want to do uh, the new real book or yeah. <laughs> real book two? Right. And it's like, no, we should just be, able, you know, be able to say, Oh yeah, I do that one in G. Yeah. 
And then we should go, okay, you want to do it like the Benny Golson record? Yeah, yeah, I love, you know. Right. And I think now there's a little less responsibility on actually learning stuff and internalizing it. Yeah. Because of that. Right. So I always commend musicians. Whenever I see jazz musicians play who like kind of go off book and maybe they pull it out when they need it. Uh Uh-huh. I always try to point out how much I appreciate watching artists like that. Even touring artists I see that are just like, everyone's on a book, you know? Yeah. Because yeah. a lot of bands that are touring jazz artists, it's like, well, I hired these three musicians to back me up because so-and-so wasn't available for this run. Mm-hmm. So it's tough. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I always appreciate, and that's, you know, the musicians who I resonate with most and work most without here. It's like share that same sort of, appreciation right and strive to do that right right still like not not allowing the fact that you're in a small market to uh you know you you don't get comfortable you don't get lazy you still exactly take it very seriously and you know as if you were in chicago or minneapolis and as if there were other 50 drummers 50 other drummers yep could (laughs) yeah. yeah And that goes back to what you were saying about just like having the respect for the audience, whether it's in a church or a bar or a wedding, just like, uh, you know, having the respect and the work ethic, no matter what market you're in to do shit right. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's, uh, yeah. And especially in a smaller area, it's like. Yeah, there's not as many bands that we're competing with. So it's like we can get away with some of those things. And maybe you think your audience is not as bright or hip to some of those things and won't care. But Mm -hmm. it's like, no, I still think they, even if they can't say it and put it into words, what made them feel like they couldn't get into what you're doing, you being like stuck in an iPad might be it. It has to do with them trusting you, right? Because they're not going to know whether or not you, as the drummer, know that the bridge goes to G, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> that's that's not going to land on them. But um, like if if what they're feeling coming off the stage is trustworthy, I I do this with I, like m- my wife and I talk about this in terms of singers all the time. Like there are certain singers like you hear them sing, you watch them, and you're like, I'm I'm going where you go. I'm you're, yeah. I am in your hands, right? Wherever you want to go, I trust you because I know you're going to take me there. And there are other singers, not just singers, but instrumentalists too, where it's like, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know where you're going. I don't feel right. Like putting my heart in your hands. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it could, it could have to do with their, you know, um, their mastery of their technique just on a, on a base level, but it also could have to do with just their musical personality. Like, I find some musicians trustworthy as a listener and others not. And if you're trustworthy as a musician, I think even the most uh, uh, lay person listener will respond to that. Oh, totally. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a a highfalutin um, esoteric uh, thing I'm trying to, (laughs) to put down, but you're, you're getting it. Yeah. And it's so easy to, be able to like recognize that in a singer because they're at the front of the stage. And especially for someone who's not a musician, like what do they connect with on stage is lyrics. Yeah. Me, I always find that funny. Like my fiance knows all the words to every song. And I'm like, I don't know any of the words. <laughs> I know the song is called this so that they say that at some point, but I know the groove. Yeah. I know it goes to the four chord. Right. Cause I can hear it, you know, 
but yeah, I hardly pay attention to lyrics. But yeah, when you're on stage listening to a band, like it's, yeah, that's an awesome thing to have the trust of your audience. far as having a reach beyond this region i would imagine that starting your youtube channel was uh you know in in that uh, in in service of that concept yeah i don't think it was designed that way or originally intended to do that um but i definitely recognize that now as mm-hmm. i work on it that i've grown a larger audience and how I mean, cool you're, that you're coming is coming up on like 10,000 subscribers right yeah i'm, I'm getting there yeah yeah, and uh, I started doing weekly videos during COVID uh-huh. within like the first month of everything getting shut down because I had, luckily all my lesson families, I have about 20 to 25 students any given week. That's quite a few. They were all super accommodating of like, yes, let's do it on FaceTime. Let's try it on Zoom. And honestly, a bunch of them were even like, we understand how tough this must be for you, self-employed, who relies a lot on live performing too. Yeah. So even if you don't want to do virtual lessons or don't think it's working, we'll just pay you. Wow. And that meant a lot to me. And I think that is a good sign that like, all right, I'm, I'm being a good teacher, not just like doing this to get by through the week and make money until I can get a gig. Right. Right. Um, but I'm a very motivated person and I get a lot of joy on being busy. Yeah. So having all my gigs canceled was pretty heartbreaking but I think I realized pretty quick that if I sit around and watch all the new Netflix shows and just do nothing, that's not going to be good for me mentally. Right. So it was like, all right, I'm going to repaint every bedroom in the house. All the projects I wanted to do around the house, now I can do them, mm-hmm. right? And then I was realizing, like, I need something that fulfills me musically. So at first it was, let me just record. I write most of the drum set solos, snare solos that my students learn. And so it's like, let me record examples of all that so that my students can access it anytime. Because the one thing you can't do on a Zoom lesson is play together, right? Yeah, yeah. So if I can make an example of me playing this snare solo and put a count off, you can play with the video, you can slow down the speed, you can raise the speed. And at this point, like you, you already had this space. I had the space, yeah. You already had some, some recording and video chops in place. I don't think I really had video chops. I just had one of those Zoom... Q2 cameras, you know, a GoPro with a decent mic. Right. And that's how I was doing that stuff. But then after I got all that content recorded to send to students, I was like, well, maybe I could like do a transcription or a cover or something. Right. So I think the first video I did was a transcription of Carl Allen playing with Benny Green Hmm. on the Testifying album, which Mm -hmm. is like one of my Desert Island jazz trio records. And I just put it up on YouTube and I shared it on Facebook and I tagged Carl because he's originally from Wisconsin too. Oh, cool. So I had met him at, you know, Days of Percussion or something like that. 
And he responded and sent me a message. He's like, can you send me the PDF of that? I was like, that's cool. Like yeah. he wants to see it. I hope it's not wrong. <laughs> you know? And so that was like the first uh, chance that like, wow, I put something out there and a person I admire and respect saw it mm-hmm. and appreciated what I did. Right. So then I just kept, all right, every week I'm going to find something I can do video wise and just post something. And there's a lot of people on YouTube making a living doing things that like, I don't even think are that great musically, you know? And sometimes it's just like joking around and having fun and nothing against that or just them jamming to a song. And it's like, they have tens of thousands of subscribers and make tons of extra income by doing this. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't all driven by like money or fame or anything, but it's like, let me just keep doing this and see if I can build up an audience of a thousand subscribers. And then maybe I could monetize my channel or something. Right. So yeah, drum covers, transcriptions. And then since I'm a woodworker and enjoy kind of tinkering with drums, that got me into like, well, I'm going to build a pancake bass drum. Let me see if I can kind of document the process and if other people would be interested in that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that got a lot of positive response. Yeah. So yeah, it's grown a lot over the last three years or four years and I'm still doing every week. I've never missed. Yeah, so you're doing one a week? And sometimes too, you know, like, wow. cause I'm at the point now where I have so many ideas and different things that it's like, I don't want to, you know, I finished a video a few weeks ago and it won't come out till September wow. and it's June, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's a shame. People are going to have to wait to see this. I'm really excited about you it. You got that many in the pipeline? Yeah. And Jesus. I kind of work in spells, right? Like my summer gigging schedule is crazy. Yeah. I wish I had, I have a few things that are filmed and shot and I know I won't have time to edit them for a while. Uh-huh. And it's like, all right, well then I need to get the summer done. Right. Yeah. And sometimes it's just like an opportunity presents itself. Like, oh, I got this used drum set on Craigslist and I want to fix it up and flip it and sell it and kind of show that process. It's like, well, it just happened because mm-hmm. the deal presented itself. Right. So yeah, but I do work pretty far ahead and I'm always working on it and it's not like paying my mortgage, right? but it's like, it's making decent money now um, to where it's inspiring me to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I put out videos and I want to keep doing this at the end of every year where I talk about the revenue and growth and subscribers and views and how that translated into money. Yeah. Cause I would love it if more people who are doing that were really transparent about I mean, like, what is this, you know, is it like, is it, is you it, making a million dollars by doing this? Or are you making like, does it pay for like your cell phone bill? Right. You know, what's, what I mean, does it's, that mean? It's, it's ad revenue, right? Uh, yeah, mostly. And, and I mean, I, it, it might be a longer story than we have time to go into, but like at, at what point does, uh, it, at what point does it turn? Like, do you have to do it? Do you have to, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you have to do it, <laughs> but like, I'm, I have no idea how um, that kind of thing gets monetized. I have some idea of how a podcast gets monetized, and it's, yeah. through, it's through ad revenue. But what, how, like, talk talk about it to whatever extent you feel you have time. Yeah, to and do. I'm sure every <laughs> every social media platform has their own metrics and qualifications to monetize your content. But on YouTube, the two big metrics are you have to have a thousand subscribers. Okay. And you have to have four thousand watch hours in the last year. 
Okay. To become part of their partner program, which is how you can put ads on your videos that you collect revenue from. Okay. And so, so you reach that threshold and then you sort of apply. Yep. Okay. And I got accepted within a few hours because it was really more procedural. You yeah. know, I think there's a few other things mostly about um, what the actual content is like, okay, we can't monetize stuff like that. Right. Especially you think about today's world with the way news is distributed or yeah. misleading things yeah. and post. It's like, so I think they try to monitor that or protect themselves that way. Sure. Um, but yeah, I actually had, it all happened very quick because I was making videos for a year. Maybe it was two years at this point, but I had started doing some transcriptions where I like note for note, write out what a drummer might play as opposed to like a drum cover, just jamming over a song. Mm -hmm. And it was like a Thursday night and I was thinking, okay, tomorrow I'm going to wake up because since I was sharing the space with my fiance working from home, it was like, Friday through Sundays, I can be loud anytime and set up to record. But during the week when I'm teaching, that's a little more challenging. And when she's more on conference calls and stuff. So I was like, I'm going to wake up Friday morning and transcribe this Wolfpack tune that I like. And then Thursday night, I was scrolling Instagram and I follow Anderson Pack. And he had talked about like, we're releasing a single tomorrow with Bruno Mars. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll check that out in the morning because I like his drumming and I like Bruno Mars. And that was like the first Silk Sonic song that ever got released. Mm -hmm. So I woke up and I listened to it. I was like, wow, the drumming's interesting. Which it's song not like, was it? Uh, Leave the Door Open. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you think like today's pop songs, if I transcribed it, it'd be like the same beat a hundred times in a row, no fills, no crashes. Yeah. That wouldn't be exciting to share with drummers, right? So I listened to the song. I'm like, oh, this is cool. And it's not crazy. Right. Like I could figure it out. Right. Um. So, you know, probably like 8 or 9 a.m., started writing out the music, what I heard from my desk. By 11 or 12, I had written it all out and was like taking over to the drums to try and play it. And by 3 o'clock, I had gotten a take or something of actually playing through it, one take to what I thought was perfect and mm -hmm. probably missed some stuff. And then by like 5 o'clock, I had edited the video and synced it up with the sheet music on screen. And it's like, okay, that's cool. I'll share it and see if I can get on that first wave of there's a lot of excitement and buzz about the song. Mm. Maybe I can kind of ride that wave. Maybe I'll get a thousand views because a lot of my videos would get like a few hundred, right. right? And so like I went to a gig that night and I was checking it on the break like, oh, that's cool. It's got 500 views. That's crazy. Yeah. And then by the time I woke up the next morning, I had, you know, 2000 or something I'm like, wow, that's wild. Yeah. And then I remember like throughout the next few days thinking like, oh my God, this thing's going to break 10,000 views. Like, that's nuts. Mm -hmm. And through that time, you know, the YouTube algorithm was like, oh, people are watching this video, watching most of it, as opposed to clicking it and turning away. Mm. We're going to keep recommending it to people who like drums or like Bruno Mars or whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think by like midweek, it had a hundred thousand views. I was like, holy Jesus. crap. Like that's insane. Yeah. And through like the end of that cycle, it was getting thousands of views every day and took me from maybe 500 subscribers to like 2000 within a week. Yeah. And it gave me the watch hours I needed to become part of the partner program. Right. And I can't monetize that video because it's copyright. So all the revenue collected on that video would go to the artist, huh. which is great uh -huh. because the value I got from it was worth more than whatever money I was going to make. Right. Um, but it allowed my other videos to start generating revenue. Yeah. So, and you know, at the beginning it was like, oh, I made 10 bucks this month. That's cool. I could like 
get a burger. Go to Culver's on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but um, this year it's been consistently $150, $200 a month. This month it was $450 because yeah. YouTube boosted one of my videos over the last couple months, an older video too. Right. They're like, you know what? People are watching this and like it. We're going to show it to everybody. Right. So it's encouraging to keep going. Yeah. That's not nothing. That's only going to grow. No. Yeah. It's awesome. And honestly, it's like, all right, well, if this keeps up, maybe one day I'll still teach lessons, but maybe those five or six kids that are really there because their parents are forcing them and don't show up with their music or don't really care. It's like, maybe I don't teach lessons on Thursdays. Maybe I just work on my content, Yeah, you know, and yeah, that's yeah. part of that income, you know? Yeah. So in addition to like just doing it consistently, I think like, you know, a YouTube channel and a podcast have this in common. Like if, if you're going to, if you're going to do it, you got to commit to being consistent about it and, you know, decide how often you're going to drop a new episode and, and just commit to it. Um, but it seems like in, in the YouTube world, like, I don't know, I don't know if it requires a sort of, you know, viral moment like that, but it, it sure helps. I, I, I feel like it would be tough to build that big a following without something hitting. Yeah. And it definitely, it's nice to have one of those. And honestly, I feel like I've only had something that extreme twice, Mm -hmm. but then I've also had smaller boost where it's like, Oh, I got, you know, 500 new subscribers this month. That's a little more than usual. Right. That's cool. Or it's getting to the point now where, and this is really cool where people reach out maybe through Instagram, you know, direct message or something and let me know or share pictures of like, Oh, I recreated your project and your video was so helpful. Or, uh, oh, can I take a Skype lesson from you and just talk about career stuff, what you're doing, right? So a lot of that's been cooler. I go to the Chicago Drum Show every year, and it's like, wow, this year it's like a half dozen people came up and stopped me. Oh, I watch your videos, and I love it. It's cool to meet you, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a little ego boost there, but it's like, okay, this is cool that I'm seeing and seeing the impact, right? Right. And it's giving me a lot more opportunities on a larger scale. Right. And I, I just remembered, I, I kind of made half a point about, about having a viral moment, but the, the other half of that point that I meant to make was that if you're savvy, if you're paying attention, you can create that viral moment. It's not just about sort of like waiting for lightning to strike and putting something out there and being like, well, maybe this is the one, yeah. you know, like you recognize like, Oh, this song is dropping tomorrow there's going to be a lot of buzz and hype around it. So if I can get my shit together and get some content up about that song, maybe, you know, yeah, maybe exactly. It'll hit. And you were absolutely right. So that savviness, that awareness and that, um, sort of, you know, adaptability to just like say, okay, like I'm doing this today, whatever I, <laughs> whatever I planned on doing today, fuck it. I'm going to do this video because this song is coming out today and it paid off. Yeah. And even more so than I thought. Cause like those transcriptions, I can't make money off them. Mm-hmm. And when that first one came out, I was getting tons of people. Can I get the PDF? Can I get the PDF? Mm. And I was just sending it out for free at first. Like, all right, subscribe to my channel and I'll send you the PDF. And then it was getting so overwhelming how many emails I was getting. that I was like, you know what? Watch, if you want to watch the music and learn from it and can't afford to support me in any way, that's fine. If you watching the video helps me. Are you subscribing to the channel and enjoying it and just building up my watch hours, right? But for people who want the PDF, I'm going to just say, leave me a tip of any amount. If it's a dollar, if it's five bucks, 
and I'll send you the PDF. Mm -hmm. And so I've done more. I did that whole Silk Sonic album over the next year. Wow. Kind of one by one. And it was, you know, developing me too as like an awesome transcriptionist and just putting stuff into finale and making it look really professional. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, every year that was giving me three to 500 bucks of people just sending tips through PayPal and Venmo in exchange for PDFs, which is kind of a nice secondary income from the channel just besides the ad revenue. Yeah. And then I started doing that this year. I've been trying to pick great studio drummers. So I did a track that Steve Gad's on comes out on Monday. Who? Steve Gad. <laughs> you know who he is? He plays on this Al Jarreau record that I just love. And I was like, no one appreciates this song. Uh huh. But he has this amazing fill. So I'm going to write the whole song and try to play it. What song is it? We're in this love together. Okay. Yeah. And I did, um, I keep forgetting by Michael McDonald. Yeah, yeah. Jeff Picaro played on that. I did rock with you. Cause it's one of my favorite songs. And I think John J.R. Robinson's playing is like perfect, we but just, also amazing. We just had him. We just had I, him on the podcast. Last I saw. Week. Yeah. Yeah. I will send that transcription to Matt. And then he can try to send it to John. Nice. Get his seal of approval. Nice. Maybe we'll get it up on our Patreon or something. Yeah, I'd happily share it. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of helping me become better at the things I want in turn. But then what was really cool is uh, two years ago or so, Tim Buell, who's a great drummer in Nashville, who does a lot of transcription work for Vic Firth and Zildjian and stuff, mm -hmm. had put out a call needing drummers who are fluent in finale and doing stuff. So I was able to get hired to work with him on a project for someone's educational website, just doing a bunch of copy work. Yeah. And that was able to connect with him. It was extra money that I could just do whenever I wanted, you right, know? Right. And then, uh, over the last month I've been working with Adam Deitch from lettuce, yeah. doing a bunch of transcriptions of his lessons for his site, man. And it's work that like I can do really fast and really well. Yeah. And honestly, when he sent the videos, I'm like, this is easy. <laughs> like not the playing. It is hard, but it's like, From this is isolated drums and you have a camera of your foot and of your hands. Like I can just watch it. Yeah. I don't have to listen to a recording where there's like noise from the guitars and be like, is he playing 16th on the high? Is that like a overdub? Like, right. Is he even doing that? Is this like, are the fills played on top of the groove? Like, yeah. How do I write that in there? You know, like this is just, you're playing on its own. Like, <laughs> yeah, this Done. is, I'll do this any day. So it's given me opportunities to like, you know, and I love lettuce and Adam's playing. So to be able to connect with him and help him yeah. with the skill that I've developed just from like starting to do it for YouTube is an awesome thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, and it's like you said, it, it opened up um, new skills and new revenue streams for you. Like the, you know, the revenue stream from YouTube is uh, you know, it's, it's rather modest. It is what it is, but it opened up, you know, another revenue stream with all this transcription shit. Yeah. And, you know, once in a while, a, a company will send me a product to check out for free. And yeah. I love gear. So it's like, yeah. all right, I didn't have to buy it. Well, this is That's the cool, cool thing about your channel is that it's like, it's omnivorous when it comes to drums. Like you're, you're, you're not really beholden to, um, any subject matter or any sort of uh, style of video. Like, like the sounds like a drum guys, you know, they're like they're so good yeah, at what they do. Yeah, it's a narrow scope. It's yes, yeah. they're so good at what they do, but it is so specific, right? And you, you know, you tune into a sounds like a drum video, you know exactly what it's going to look like, exactly what it's going to sound like, and and they're going to be talking about drum sounds in something. Yeah. But your video could be anything. Like next next week coming up, it could be an interview with somebody, it could be a a, a product 
uh, demo. It could be a drum building thing. It could be a day in the life of your career, like yeah. <laughs> filming yourself, like loading up. Well, and that's and- me too. Like, <laughs> I think the one thing we didn't talk about before, but like why I love being in a smaller market. And I don't think this is fair for me to put on big markets, but I always felt like if I moved to New York, I would have to really define what I was like. Yeah. I want to be on a jazz scene and work just on that. And the jazz scene is so massive and competitive that yep. I'd have to put laser focus on breaking in there. That, but here it's like, I play jazz. I play with the funk band. Yeah. I fill in at churches. I teach lessons. Okay. I bring people over to record once in a while and do that. Right. I make videos. It's like, I can kind of do everything. Right. You, like your, your YouTube channel is omnivorous because your career is omnivorous and you are more able to have that kind of a, a career in a place like this. Because to your point, I realized this sort of after I moved out of LA, I realized it too late. But in a big market like that, you you almost have to be a specialist. I think specialists thrive in in markets like that because – if you want to be omnivorous, if you want to play, you know, th- in three or four different genres and teach and do a YouTube channel and uh, build drums, you've got to get in line f- behind five guys who only do that thing, right? Yeah. Like the market is saturated and people have gotten really fucking good at, at doing a thing that now they're in demand for for that thing. Um, but in a market like this, it's, you know, you can, you can just swim around and <laughs> yeah, I get called to play a country gig and I don't I've never really listened to that music or played it, but it's like, all right, this will be fun to at least try once. Like <sighs> I want to play some big drums, like right. not just the jazz thing. Right. Right. Like if you were so, in Nashville, you like, nobody's calling you up and, and saying like, have, have you ever played any country gigs? Do you want to learn some songs like that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's given me a chance to try everything and like, there are certain styles that I never thought I would enjoy playing that I found like, oh, this is actually like pretty cool. Is country one of them? I played a country gig last year and it was definitely the modern country with tracks and everything. And yeah. like I had told myself after like, I wouldn't want to do this every weekend, but I would do this in the rotation of things I do. I think it would be fun to work it up again. Right. Because like that music is produced to the top level with the best engineers, the best songwriters yeah. on, and studio musicians on the planet, like learning the drum parts and like transcribing the fills and everything. Cause we're playing the tracks. It's gotta be yeah. pretty close. Yeah. Was a lot of fun and made me a better musician by taking the time to do that as opposed to showing up and being like, all right, it's in four and I'm play the Pat Boone, Debbie Boone fill. Cause that'll work. <laughs> right. You know? Right. So yeah, it was, uh, it was a cool experience that I don't think I would have had even if I was in Chicago, you know, Yep. where I might have to narrow what I do a little more. thing i want to ask you about is just a couple of tech things um because you you post quite a few video clips of your live gigs um and the the sound quality on those 
clips is amazing. Like usually when somebody posts a gig from the brewery, it's just like the phone video, whatever. But like you're getting really great sound out of pretty much any live gig I see you play. Thank you. Yeah. How are you doing it? I, well, and that is very deliberate and thought out. I made a decision with the YouTube stuff of kind of defining my voice since everything is so sporadic that like the thing that's going to be consistent is when I post stuff, it's going to look crisp and sound good. I'm not going to post like iPhone on the floor, like looking up at the ceiling and you see part of a symbol, (laughs) which I think is cool because I think that's like really genuine and honest when you listen to like, there's certain jazz drummers I love where I'm like, God, that's like on his iPhone. He sounds so good. Right. You know? Um, But for me, it's like, all right, I take a lot of pride in the production value. Mm -hmm. So I have, um, I'm not into like lenses and ISO and camera settings. I have a a point and shoot camera, Sony ZV-1. Yeah. Which was like, once the YouTube thing, I started doing okay. Even before I made revenue, I was like, let me buy a nice camera. And And I don't want to learn about lenses and this and that. So it's like. So just to stop you for a second, like for anybody listening who wants to up their camera game, you said like you bought this night's camera. How much was that camera? Like six or 700 bucks. Okay. So, so that's an a, investment. That's an investment, but yeah. it's no more an investment than a nice mic or a yeah. nice snare drum or whatever. It's not an investment that everybody is able or willing to make. But if you want to up your video game, like that's a gettable thing. Yeah. And the best thing, the thing that drew me to it was it didn't have a record limit. So I could record hours of continuous video as long as the memory card was fine Mm -hmm. and I had the power adapter plugged in so that the battery wouldn't die. Right. So a lot of times I'll take it to a gig and just set it up on a tripod near the drums or on someone's amp and just plug it in so it won't die and record the whole gig. It's like, all right, maybe there'll be an awesome moment. Right. Or maybe there'll be something stupid where I like drop my sticks and (laughs) that's fun to share, you know, or fell off the stage or something. (laughs) And then as far as the audio goes, it's like, the more I play where there's honestly, most of the gigs I play that are mic'd up with like overhead snare kick and stuff. I'm running sound mm-hmm. off of XR 18, just a digital mixer. Mm-hmm. And it has a USB out to be an interface. So if I bring my MacBook, I can just track all 18 channels mm-hmm. and then I can come back later and mix it with some plugins. And honestly, I just mix the whole set or gig as one stem export out the whole gig and sync it up with the video as one massive, you know, maybe each set, like an hour video synced up with nice audio. And then I'll go through and scrub a few moments or something Mm -hmm. to share. Or if it's a smaller gig, like a jazz thing, I bought this zoom recorder H six or eight where it has the stereo mic and then a few inputs on it. So on those kind of gigs, the guitar player I play with most has an amp mic that he just brings with him all the time to drape over the guitar and every bass amp has a DI. So it's like, I just need XLR cables to take a line from him, line from him. And I can just point the unit at my drums with the stereo mic or like, maybe I'll bring a kick mic and get the zoom over the drums or something. And honestly, that stuff, especially with, you know, plugins that are cheap or super affordable, can do a lot. Right. You know? Right. So, and that's an awesome asset. Cause it's like, you know, with the stuff I post on my personal page is probably more drum shot centric, mm-hmm. but like with my trio, it's like, okay, I can take something from out front 
and then put it on the Reddit community and people are like, oh, that's cool. Are you guys on Spotify or mm-hmm. can send it to gigs? Oh, here's us playing at a different brewery, you know, and it sounds and looks good. Right. And I think that makes a big difference. I think it, I think it really does. And it, I mean, aside from the potential, you know, revenue or, or following benefit, like it's, it just, it just makes for a much more watchable video. Like yeah. when it looks good, when it sounds good, you know, um, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I've sort of gotten into archiving things and it's like during COVID, I went back and listened to some concert recordings of college, big bands or high school and stuff. And it's fun to see the growth and just to relive some of those moments. So mm-hmm. it's made me aware of like, oh, it's cool to be able to go back and have these things. You know, I have a hard drive that can fit decades of live gig recordings I've done. Mm-hmm. Right. I think the grind is just mixing it and yeah. cutting up tracks if I want to save it right. for a thing. But it's a nice thing. And then, you know, if we have a sub in a band, here are good sounding recordings that you can check out of how we play. Yeah. And yeah. here's about the tempo. And you can kind of hear, oh, we open it up here for solo. So yeah. you don't have to count so diligently or something. Right, right. So it just has benefits. But yeah, it's it takes time, you know. It does. To mix. Um, and so it it, you know, whether it's getting that stuff sort of set up at the gig or mixing and editing it after the gig, like it, it takes some doing, but, yeah. it, but it is doable. Um, do you have any advice for players who, you know, might not be able to invest in a $600 camera, might not have the time or the gear to set up at a gig like that? Like for, for people who are working with their phone and maybe a little bit of extra basic gear. Do you have any tips about just how to improve the audio and video quality of what they're putting out? Yeah. I mean, I think a phone is probably just as good, but for me, it's like, I like having my phone on me at the gig. So I don't want to have it away, Mm -hmm. whether I, you know, I'm using it to reference the set list or something, or even mix my in-ear mix or something. Listening to the bridge on the set break. Yeah. Yeah. For that. (laughs) Yeah. Downloading the charts when I get to the gig. So I I can't do that. Yeah, but a phone is great. And then I would just say, look on Amazon and invest in some sort of dumb phone mount. You know, you can get stuff that clips onto a mic stand or a tripod for it, this or that. And you can spend 10 bucks to get, you know, because you don't want to just prop it on somebody's amp and then it falls over and then realize it didn't look good or something anyways. Or the whole time it's like buzzing. Yeah. So it's like, (laughs) you know, make a little investment to get a little more mileage out of your phone. Yeah. And then as far as the audio, like for me... It's always, and this is always, I don't bring a camera to every gig and archive that stuff. Right. But, you know, once I'm kind of running low on content, it's like, oh, I'm playing this jazz gig where I know there's a great setup to get a good shot and not be in someone's way or like we're not tucked in a corner in a dark room or something. But like some gigs where someone else is running sound, pretty much every sound guy and company is using some sort of board that can at least two track record, mm-hmm. just give you a left, right yeah. of the mix from out front. And that sounds usually fine, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. So whenever I'm in a situation where it's like, Oh, this person's running sound great. I'm just going to ask, bring them a flash drive or an SD card and get a mix, you know? Yeah. So I'm definitely going to bring a camera and try to get some shots. Yeah. Right. Some sound companies are, they want to charge you for that or, can be a little, you know, not cool, but you know, if you work with these guys regularly, 
most of them know, like, I just want to post a dumb clip on Instagram. Right. And this is one more reason to just make friends with the sound crew. Like, we've been talking about this a lot in terms of, like, the dialogue that you can have about miking the drums or, you know, how how to get drum sounds. Like, you can have these dialogues with with sound people but man if if you just like learn the guy's name at the beginning and just say hey i'm zach i'm playing drums like if you just get off on the right foot with them anything else you ask them to do whether it's change your mix or move a mic or you know put the thing on your on your flash drive they're going to be so much more inclined to do it if you just treat them like a person yeah yeah totally and so yeah, whenever I have the opportunity for them to record it and take care of it, it's like, all right, this is all I have to do is bring the camera and press record. Cool. Right. right. You know. And so honestly, sometimes if I record a whole gig, I just maybe find four or five moments, dump them in a folder on my computer, and then once a week, it's like, oh, let me share one of those. Yeah. You know, so that it's not just the same shot over and over again of a different song. Right. And you put yourself in the mentality of like building up, um, building up an archive of content yeah. that you then. How, you you get to pick and choose. It's like okay, it's time to post something. Let's let's dig into what I got and yeah. You, know, you don't have to say oh well, I don't have shit to post. Let me try and think of something to do in the studio here. Or I'm gonna record the next gig. It's like no, I've got stuff ready to go. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I think everyone kind of knows your Instagram feed is like your business card now to yeah, other yeah. musicians. Yeah. And I know a lot of musicians who are hesitant or resistant to that. And I feel like I was at first too. I was really late to jump on that social platform and start contributing. And it's like, I don't know if you're not willing to do that and play ball as a musician, that's like being, you know, a computer repair person be like, Oh, we only work on uh, windows XP and earlier, (laughs) you know, it's like every industry has the thing where they have to accept and learn, you know, I know older people in their 60s and 70s who are the most modern current tech people I know because their work demands it. They're not mm-hmm. resistant of like, you know, the old OS was so much better. I'm, <laughs> I'm never upgrading. It's like, I have to. Right. You know? Yeah. I think that's the same thing with music. It's like learning how to record film and present yourself to the audience. is just whether live or on social media, it's just kind of part of the game. Yeah, for sure. And you got to be intentional about it. You can like you can create your own sort of aesthetic. Like I think it's it's the wild west as far as what um you know what the aesthetic of your particular like whatever yeah. you want to put out there. Like you don't have to adhere to one formula. You can invent one, but you do mm-hmm. have to do it. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think it's necessarily hard. I think a lot of people are intimidated before they start messing with that stuff. Uh-huh. I'm not like the most guru of engineering and mixing. I'm using a lot of like plugins that are doing the heavy lifting and I press a button of like mojo toms, gated toms. <laughs> All right, that preset sounds good, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um it's not it doesn't have to be that hard. I think it's just hard to do, right? To yeah. commit to I'm gonna post something on Instagram every week or I'm gonna make a video on YouTube once a month, yep. even, right? The more I do it, the easier it is to live up to that schedule. Like yeah. now I'm like, oh, maybe I should be putting out like two things a week, like mm. one real video and one of just me playing on YouTube, mm. you know? So it's like three or four years ago, I'm like, I'm going to try to put out one every week. Like during COVID that was easy, but now sure. that I'm working, it's yeah hard. Yeah, man. So, well, but it's not that you're bad. You're doing it. You're doing it, man. Everything looks great. Everything sounds great. Um, and it was, it, it's, it's really great to, um, 
just meet you and talk with you and and see a person in uh, a place that means something to them um because we've you know we we obviously cover new york and la and nashville a lot but um you know part of the point of our podcast is to to learn about dudes like you um and this is i like i interviewed a guy who lived in athens georgia a few years ago um but other than that, I think you are in the smallest community that we've taken a look at. We've done a lot of other second and third tier cities like Seattle, Cincinnati, yeah. Kansas City, um, you know, Miami, whatever. But like Oshkosh, Wisconsin and the surrounding area, there's shitloads of music happening and shitloads of great musicians. Um, and it was, it was, but really there's good. no room for any more. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I would love it if, uh, <laughs> It's nice to be confident enough in where I am that I don't feel threatened when someone new comes to town or I remember when I was the younger, you know, 23, 24, kind of trying to push the boundaries in this area and the older guys being like, ah, they're taking our gigs or whatever. And now I'm seeing like people that are younger than me, like, oh, you're playing at this place now. I got to, you know, but it's right. nice. I don't have to feel competitive. Right. And that's, I mean, the thing is like, nobody's taking anybody else's gigs. It's um, I think when when new people come to town, um, they they create they tend to create more gigs, especially if they're a yeah. creative driver, right? Like if they're a band leader, if they're a creative person, um, or if they're just a different type of drummer, um, like they're they're going to expand the scene. They're not going to, you know, it, it's it's not like the pie gets cut up into more pieces. The you know the pie gets a little bigger. Exactly. Yeah. Ideally, I think, you know, there is competitiveness and there well, is... at this point too, it's like, now that I see this other, you know, part of my life with YouTube and social stuff growing, it's like, maybe I don't have time to play all those gigs. Right. You you, maybe you don't have to do every single bar. Luckily one feeds the other. It's like, all right, well, if I film about doing X kind of gig, right. you know, I'm just taking advantage of something I'm already doing and making it benefit me somewhere else. Yeah. It's yeah. like, I have a, I think that like, day in the life, three gigs in a day video I did. It's almost made as much money in ad revenue as I made that day playing the gigs. <laughs> you know, so it's like, yeah. Which part of it was more important? The fact that I played the gigs or that I filmed it, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. But and they both just work in tandem. Right. Right. And well, it's nice. Cause like the best thing about it is as drummers, I feel like we're kind of subservient to playing with others. Yeah. Like I have friends who play guitar or piano and it's like, oh, I can't find anyone to play this trio gig at this restaurant. I'll just play solo. I don't like playing solo gigs, but I can. Right. Like for me, if I get a gig offer and no one's available, it's like I have to turn down the gig yeah. and lose the money. But with the video stuff, it's like however motivated I am, I can put out a video. I'm right. not reliant on other people contributing to be able to do it. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of filled that frustration of being a drummer i think sometimes where it's like man no one's free to play i guess i'll just sit at home <laughs> or go watch them play it you know? god how sad is that it's like hey i got this gig can you make it no i got another gig oh shit well i can't do mine now so i'll go watch yours i had a nursing home reach out to me about playing and she was like, we can only afford to hire a solo act. Though. I was like, oh, you must have not saw my website. I actually play drums. She's like, oh, I think drums are beautiful. We could do that for, a th I'm like, I'm not playing 30 minutes for solo drums for your residence. Ooh, yeah, that would be, yeah. <laughs> like, I know you think that's fun, but that sounds like a nightmare for me. 
Oh man. I mean, it would make for a good video. Consider that. That, that is true. Yeah. <laughs> I've found playing in nursing homes. That's like the most brutal crowd. Cause if they don't enjoy what you're doing, they are getting up and leaving. Oh, for They're sure. Like, I've got limited time left yeah. to live. <laughs> I'm not. If your music sucks, <laughs> I'm not wasting it with you. Woo. And, you know, it's not like they move quick or quiet. They're going to answer their phone in the middle of the concert hall or they're going to wheel themselves out of there and be super noisy. So I've had that happen and be like, oh, or, you know, someone lean over. Marge, I don't like this. Yeah. You know, they're not quiet. Take me back to my (laughs) room. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm not going to try the solo drum gig in that environment. Yeah. I don't think you have to. You, (laughs) You got enough else going on. You don't have to take the solo drum nursing home gig. Uh, it was great talking to you, man. It was great meeting you. Uh, thank you for coming to the show. Uh, and thank you for, for hosting us here in, in your in your super cool space. Yeah, and thank you for being open to coming down and hanging and let me know about the show. It was amazing to hear you play. Awesome. And get to see you a lot until the end. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed that. And I've loved this show for a long time. And it's given me so many great ideas to apply to my own career. And I appreciate kind of the variance of smaller, unknown people kind of grinding to Peter Erskine and John J.R. Robinson. Yeah, you know, people you're, like, you're following Jr. We had Jr. last week, and you're you're up next week. So sweet, <laughs> there it <Yeah>. is. <laughs> Great talking to you, man. All right, thanks so much. There you go, Mike Malone. Thanks to him for that hang. I highly recommend subscribing to Malone Drum on YouTube. Tons of great content there, and incidentally, I'm happy to say he'll be doing a feature on me and my gig on the Ain't Too Proud Tour that's coming up in early August. So big thanks to Mike for that. Next week, Matt Krause will be talking with Dr. Charlie Kautz and Dr. Cheyenne Gaffari. They are chiropractors who run the Fine Tune Clinic in Nashville, where musicians comprise a large part of their... They are chiropractors who run the Fine Tune Clinic in Nashville, where musicians comprise a large part of their clientele. We've been talking a lot lately about all the different ways your body needs to be set up to succeed in order to perform, so I'm sure that's going to be enlightening on multiple fronts. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.